And I'm Ash. Welcome to Crime Potatoes Podcast. Grab your snacks, get comfy, and let's get to it. Welcome back, potatoes. Another week, another episode. (laughs) We are now into March. This year has gone by so fast. It really has. This is what, our 21st or 22nd episode? I think think it's our 22nd. Which feels so weird. (laughs) I know. I feel like we're only on our, like, 10th, but here we are. Here we are. Well, what are you snacking on tonight? Uh, I was out of snacks, so I my husband was kind enough to go to 7-Eleven down the road and get me uh, berry mambas. Have you had the berry mambas? Like forever ago. I haven't had mambas in like 20 years. I freaking love mambas. Usually I love the tropical, but I really am liking the berry ones right now. I feel like the last time I actually had mambas was when I... I was with you, actually. The last time I can remember it, at least, <laughs> is we were at your house when you lived in that little trailer house. Oh, my gosh. That's so forever ago. Yeah. That was when I first got married. Yeah. And you were just a baby. I know. That's why I said it was like 20 years ago. <laughs> Feels like it. Not that long, but still. What about you? What are you snacking on? Um, tonight I have my strawberries and cream, Dr. Pepper, of course. Needed one of those today because it was Fair. a day. Let me tell you about it real fast. I got out to my shop. One of my pictures had fallen off my wall, completely broke. And I was like, are you kidding me? It's so cute. And now it's gone. Then I go to set up for my appointments and I didn't even drop it. It just tipped over a hand sanitizer bottle. It's glass, but it just barely tipped over, shattered. Oh my gosh. So, you know. So yeah, little side it's story. It's for you. And I also have some hickory barbecue lays. Mm. I know a lot of people are barbecue chip haters, but... Are you kidding me? I'm here for it. Freaking love barbecue chips. <laughs> There's your little, what is it? The ASMR for the night. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm sure that sounds so gross. <laughs> well, it is your turn this week, Ash. So my case sources are 2020newspapers.com, wikipedia.org, polyclass.org, abcnews.go, griefhaven.org, and pressdemocrat.com. Hmm. All right, bring it on. Today, our story takes place in Pataluma, California, a small, rural, safe, all-American town. Polly Class was born to her parents, Mark and Eve Class, on January 3rd, 1981. When Polly was just a few years old, her parents split and she lived with her mother. Her mother then had another little girl named Annie. Although her parents were split, she still had a supportive and positive relationship with her father, checking in with him every day. On October 1st, 1993, 12-year-old Polly went to school. It was a Friday and she was so excited for her weekend. 
At lunch that day, Polly, her best friend, and two other classmates talked together and planned to ask their parents if they could have a sleepover that night at Polly's house. When Polly got home, she talked to her mom and she said that would be okay. So she called her two classmates and her best friend and the two other friends were able to come, but her best friend unfortunately wasn't able to because she was recovering from a cold. The two girls were Kate and Jillian. They arrived to Polly's house excited to have a slumber party. Annie and Polly shared a room, but that night Annie slept in her mom's room so the older girls could have some privacy. Around nine, Polly's mother went to bed with Annie. The older girls were enjoying their time together, playing games, putting on makeup, and laughing. At 10.30, Polly decided to go get all the girls' sleeping bags in the living room so they could set up their beds for the night. Polly jumped up from the game and opened her bedroom door. There in the doorway was a man holding a knife. I think I know this case now that maybe. Oh, really? I think. Maybe. Keep going. Okay. Twelve-year-old minds started racing. Is this a prank? What's happening? Confusion struck all three of the girls. Then the man announced that he wasn't there to hurt them, but to take some money. The man forced the young girls down onto the floor. He gagged them and tied their hands using strips of white cloth and what felt like electrical cord. He asked who lived there, and when Polly said she did, he took her, assuring the other girls that he would bring her back, telling he was taking her to collect valuables as it was her house and she would know her way around. He told the two girls to count to 1,000, and then she would be back. They never got to 1,000, or at least the one where Polly returned. One of the girls managed to untie herself and then helped the other one out. They ran out of Polly's room and into Eve's room, where both her and Annie were asleep. They frantically told Eve to wake up that Polly had been kidnapped. She droggily asked who took her, and the girls just replied, The man. Eve then jumped up and called the Pataluma Police Department. So, before I go on, I wanted to explain why I put droggily. It's because she actually had a migraine that night, and so around 9 o'clock, she took some medicine and um, some sleeping pills to help get rid of the mm. migraine. So she was like, you know, kind of in that deep sleep, she was out. So she was kind of confused and yeah, oh. yeah, struck with this oh. news. She's just like, wait, what? So that's why I put that. But anyway, okay. So Eve jumped up and called the Pataluma Police Department. Policemen arrived only minutes later. They attended to the girls, ensuring they were safe, while also preserving the crime scene to search for any evidence. When detectives walked into the bedroom, they saw clothing on the floor that had been used to tie up the girls, as well as cut Nintendo cords. They also searched the room for fingerprints. There was no sign of forced entry, no burglary, nothing had been taken. Everything was there except Polly. Detective Larry Pelton from Pataluma Police Department said, quote, It was like a boogeyman came in and stole her out of that house. End quote. That's just kind of showing you like how there was just nothing. And you said this is 1993? Yes. Okay. Ugh. So while some detectives were picking apart the scene, others were fanning out around the neighborhood asking people if they had seen anything suspicious. At 12.14 a.m., about an hour after Eve called 911, the Pataluma Police Department issued an alert with a few of the details they were able to learn from the other girls that witnessed Polly being taken. This is also when they knew they needed to get the FBI involved. 
They were able to quickly get a sketch released of the man, and not only were there police searches, but the community heavily got involved conducting countless searches, hoping to bring Polly home. Wait, pause. Yes. So would this have been before there was such thing as in an al- bleh, the uh, Amber Alert? Probably. Sorry. I'm sure. That actually. is. I, I'm gonna look it up real fast. That's what I'm doing too. <laughs> yeah, it would have been. All right. That's what I thought. Yep. Because the Amber Amber Alert um, came out in what after 1996 so yes man that's crazy yeah and i will say that when they sent out a few details the what is it called oh oh, a be on the lookout a bolo yes so when the police department sent out this bolo they specifically put do not broadcast so don't put over the radio don't let any news outlets get wind of this because it's such a new scene. They don't know what they're dealing with yet. So they don't want the wrong people to hear about it. Yeah, no kidding. So as I was saying, the community, this is such a small community. You know, there was, it was like 2,000 people at the time. And nothing ever happened like this. It even grabbed celebrity attention. Winona Ryder, also known as the mom in Stranger Things, is from Pataluma. Hey, I think I actually did know that. I like her. Anyways, go on. Me too. Winona Ryder was devastated when she heard about Polly. She showed up back to her hometown in jeans and a t-shirt to help any way she could. In an interview, she said, quote, My greatest wish right now is to meet her in person and to hug her. End quote. Winona Ryder even went on to put $200,000 of her own money up for the reward. Okay, that's incredible. Yes. Absolutely it's, incredible. It's really cool. Because y- you don't hear about celebrities doing that very often. Just because, I mean, they will ask and beg others to give money, but never actually do like that. That's amazing. And that's a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. It's really cool. And... Like I was saying, she showed up and she's a celebrity, you know, so people expect her to kind of appear as such. But she showed up in t-shirt and jeans and boots. She didn't even have like her entourage following her like she was there for Polly. She wanted to help in any way she could. I just think that's so amazing. So cool. And my respect for her went up. Yeah, I immediately love her so much more. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So the FBI brought along with them the ERT, which is the evidence response team. The ERT was able to lift 48 fingerprints and even a palm print that were not initially found in the first search. This is due to the equipment that the ERT had access to. So it's not, I just had to point that out. So it's not like the first investigators couldn't do it or they just skipped it. That wasn't the case. Um, they just didn't have the right equipment no, to do it that the FBI that had. That makes sense, especially so. because for the time you said in the 90s, there was so much yeah. new stuff coming out during that time. Yeah, it was kind of the start of all the DNA and everything, I feel like. Yeah, so so that that makes sense. The FBI hooked up a track and trace on Mark's phone, which, again, Mark is Polly's dad. Okay. Because she called him all the time, never missed a day calling him. So they hooked up a track and trace on his phone and just waited, hoping that they would get something from this. See, I don't see how, why, I mean, sorry, that was, I don't know. (laughs) 
But wouldn't her friends know who her dad was if it was her dad? They, yeah, they probably do. What do you... So, or were they... Did they put a trace on his phone hoping... Oh, oh, I see what you're saying. So, when I say they put up a track and trace on Mark's phone, it's so, like, if anybody called Mark, oh. that they could trace where it went to. Okay. No, okay. They're not suspicious of Mark at all. At all. Yeah. Okay. 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 <laughs> Sorry. No, I'm glad that did kind of sound a little weird. So, yes. So, um, finally, Mark got a call. One that would turn this case inside out. Or so they thought. When Mark picked up the phone, a little girl was on the end of the line. She said her name was Polly and that she was with the kidnapper. They traced the call to a house in Hayward, California. The FBI called their office in Hayward and agents immediately went to the house and busted in the door. It was just a normal family. The young girl in the family had been dared by her friends to call and impersonate Polly. This was a hoax that crushed the family all over again. Okay, kids. I mean, you shouldn't be listening to this podcast because it's true crime and can be scary for young audience members. But if you are, do not do this. Not cool. I know this is the yeah. 90s, but everyone has access to a phone these days, I feel like. So yeah. just don't do that. It takes time and money away from the actual case. Okay, sorry. That was my two cents. Despite the time and money, I would say the heartache that it brings to the parents. Yes. Or the family that's involved. Getting that little glimmer of hope and then it just, it's really... Just a cycle of this. That is when so that true. It hurts the family. And then it takes police officers away from actually working on the case. Because then they're yes. going to go look elsewhere. Sorry, that was my two cents. But <laughs> children should not be listening to this. Anyways, go on. It's all good. The police were obviously getting nowhere. They even came to the idea because of a few inconsistency in the girls' stories that maybe they were involved that maybe they had pulled this elaborate, air quote, prank to help Polly run off with a boy or something of that sort. How old were they? They were 12. Okay. It, yeah, it seems a little far-fetched, and we'll get to that. So it even went as far as making the girls take polygraph tests. Jillian's came back, and she passed, and Kate's came back inconclusive. However, Kate was very distressed beforehand, which can affect the outcome of these tests well and we all know about polygraphs that they though they can be helpful yeah, yeah gotta take them with a they're not salt. really reliable yeah finally the girl's parents said that their girls have been through enough and told the fbi that they could no longer speak to their daughters the police quickly realized they were running down the wrong track and they apologized to the girls and their families for what they had put them through. Good. So there is a little bit more to that and um, it's linked in the show notes. I just didn't want to go too far into it because it really, they were trying to dig up anything and the police did kind of were at fault for this and really started to blame the girls and try to get them to say stuff that just wasn't true. It's so hard because... <laughs> Yeah. They were just trying to do their job, but at the same time, like 12 year old girls then are way different than 12 year old girls now. Just saying. So, yeah. But you can kind of see it from both yeah. sides. So, man. Yeah. I do 
appreciate though that they realized like how badly they were pushing these girls and kind of hurting them a little bit more with all the trauma they've been through um and yeah they were big enough to apologize in that no, way that, so that's awesome yeah so the girls did however come back to help with the sketch as they were not happy with the original one it just wasn't quite right so the fbi brought in jan boylan a forensic artist she sat with the girls for nine hours the first day they met she was able to get more details from the girls and put a final sketch together this one was it it was almost as if it were a picture and not just a sketch and all over the media that's how you'll see it um even polly's dad was like that sketch they took a picture of a man you know mm -hmm. it's not just a sketch like it was really good and it we'll see how it helps later but i will share both their first sketch and the second final sketch okay and you can definitely like see why they weren't happy with that first sketch okay so now we're going back to october 1st the night that polly went missing or was taken that same night and around the same time Eve called the police about missing Polly. Officers responded to a call about a trespasser on Pythian Road, which was about 20 miles away from the scene unfolding at Polly's house. A woman named Dana lived up this long, secluded road. She had just returned from her shift at a restaurant to her 12-year-old daughter who was being watched by a babysitter. When the babysitter left, she was driving down the long driveway. Then she saw a man standing next to a car that looked as if it was stuck. She slowed down and the man came over to her car. She stayed inside and made sure her doors were locked, Good but girl. she did roll down her window just a few inches. Smart girl. Take tips. <laughs> the man stuck his fingers through the crack and told the girl that she needs to get out of her car to help him. Feeling very uneasy, she quickly rolled her window back up and drove off. The encounter frightened her so much that she decided to call Dana to let her know about the man that was just down the road from her house. After Dana got off the phone with the babysitter, she quickly told her daughter to get dressed and that they needed to get out. She was obviously very uneasy about this too. <sighs> Dana and her daughter got in the car and headed down the road to see what the man was doing. She passed the man's car but didn't see the man inside of it. So she drove down to the end of the road and called the sheriff's office to report a trespasser on her property. Two officers arrived and followed Dana back up to her gate where the man was casually sitting with his car. When the car stopped, the man walked over to Dana's car and starts apologizing, saying he was just out sightseeing and got stuck after turning down the wrong road. Remember, this is about midnight. Sightseeing. Yeah, middle of the night. So yeah, he was just he said he was just outside seeing and got stuck after turning down the wrong road. She told the man that the police would deal with him. Then she and her daughter went back up to the house. The police checked his driver's license, checked his vehicle, and patted him down. His pants were wet and he was covered in dirt and pieces of weeds. When asked how that happened, the man told police that he had been crawling around the ground trying to push weeds and brush up under his tires to try and help free his car. Huh. So police obviously were kind of like looking around the scene and they didn't see anywhere where the man was like trying to push leaves and stuff up under the tires like he said he was. But they looked everywhere else. There was nothing concerning. And it's a Friday night. I'm sure they have other calls that probably a little more important see more important so 
So they even looked to see if he had any outstanding warrants and everything checked out. So they called a tow truck to help the man get his car out and then they followed him down the dirt road and made sure he got on the highway to leave because again he was trespassing so they just wanted to make sure he got out of there and Dana said she didn't want to press any charges so they just made sure he got out of there and then they went on their way. Okay. I mean, I I feel like I know where this is going, but also because this case does sound familiar to me, but even then, okay, just keep going because I can't. Yeah. All right. Almost two months later on November 28th, 1993, Dana and a friend went on a walk through her property. While walking around, she came across some items and none of it seemed right to her. There were little girls, red tights, a man's sweatshirt a piece of white cloth that was knotted in different places, and a used condom. Uh, She immediately believed she had just come upon a crime scene. She called the Pataluma police, and when they arrived, their stomachs dropped. The white cloth looked exactly like what they had found in Polly's room two months prior. This is when the dots were starting to get connected. Where those items were found was right where the trespasser's car had gotten stuck the same night Polly went missing. They went back and pulled up the records for that night and had found their suspect, 39-year-old Richard Allen Davis. Cuss word. They even put a picture of Davis next to the sketch, and they looked very similar and shared many features. Not only did his appearance match, but so did his track record. Davis had three previous kidnapping charges and had only been out of jail for six months. Ah! Yeah. So that's really frustrating to me because I'm like, okay, he's done this before. What are you, why is he out? But we will get to that a little bit later too. Um, yes. But it is ridiculous that people like him have that many charges and are out on the streets. Just saying. Yeah. So they had, obviously his track record matched. He matched the sketch. And they also decided to test the prints, obviously. (laughs) They decided to test the prints that they had found in Polly's bedroom against Richard Davis. And it was a match. They got cadaver dogs and began searching the surrounding area where the items were found, fanning out further and further, but there was still no body. The police gathered the warrants and set out to find Davis. SWAT teams surrounded Richard Davis's house but he wasn't there. However, a call came over the radio and a deputy on perimeter control had caught him. They took Davis into custody and jumped right into interviewing him. Davis initially said he had nothing to do with it, but he did slip up. He said he has killed people like that in prison, referring to child molesters, rapists, and child murderers. Uh Uh-huh, sure. However, the police never mentioned anything about a possible sexual Uh, assault. uh, Not even, none of this information had even been released to the public. What an idiot. I mean, I'm glad he's an idiot, but what an idiot. Yes. (laughs) Yes. So police obviously confront him with that, and this is when Davis decides to stop speaking and asks for attorney. Too late, sucker! Sorry. Yes, and during this time, he is still held in jail. Police began putting everything together to see how they could charge Davis without a body. So, going back to the palm print that the police found, and they were able to compare it 
um, and it was a match for Richard Davis's. Well, that went out in the news, and one of Richard Davis's previous employers just from a few months prior saw that, and so he went to the jail to speak to Richard and said, hey, they found your palm. I don't know. It didn't, like, there wasn't a whole lot of information on it other no, than but that. He, he just showed up and was like, hey, for that, man. they got your palm print. Like, they got you. And he's he convinced him to come clean. Yeah, I don't know if he conv- convinced them or just getting that information convinced him. Fair. But he did end up calling the police saying he was ready to talk. He walked them through what happened that night and led police to exactly where Polly's body was. Her body was in Cloverdale under a piece of plywood. The police went out and found the plywood. When they lifted it up, there she was. They finally found Polly Class. So a little kind of cool side note. When Polly first went missing, like that night, her mother Eve put a candle in the window and she said it would be lit until Polly came home. And the night they found Polly's remains, that candle was extinguished. So for that two months, she lit that candle every night in her window. But anyways, that was just kind of a little side note. My heart hurts. Finally, after a long trial, Davis was convicted on June 18th, 1996 of first-degree murder with four suspicious circumstances, which were kidnapping, burglary, robbery, and attempted lewd act on a child. The San Jose Superior Court jury sentenced him to death, and as if he hadn't hurt the family enough, when the verdict was read, he put up both middle fingers to the courtroom (gasps) camera. And then his last words were implying that Mark, Polly's father, had molested her, and what Davis had done wasn't so bad. Again, this is all false, but he just wanted to, you know, really hurt the family just that much more, which is horrible. So malicious. It makes me sick. You freaking kidding me. Yeah, that was the last thing he said. Um, Then I also wanted to go into what we were talking about earlier, though, how he was released and when he really kind of shouldn't been. Because of Polly's case, this is when California, um, the politicians, brought forth the three strikes law. Okay. So, these laws require a person who is convicted of an offense and who has one or two other previous serious convictions to serve a mandatory life sentence in prison. So, they can't just get out on parole. Unfortunately, that had to happen. But it is kind of good that they were able to bring forth this kind of jurisdiction um, and increase the punishment for those who continue to commit offenses. <sighs> so, yeah, it's heartbreaking, but I'm glad they were finally able to see. I mean, at least there's that, but the justice system still needs help. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to end with one last thing. Detective Pat Parks, he was a part of this investigation, um, and he was so moved by the case, just this little girl, the heartbreak, the community, just everything about it. So he actually wrote a poem specifically for Polly. So I will read that. Quote, 
We race the darkness of the night, your face our only guiding light. A simple picture, but in a while, you enchanted the nation with your smile. We knew your love by a mother's candle, by a father's anguish, too tough to handle. We shared your parents' hope and pain. We prayed our efforts weren't in vain. You touched our lives and joined our hands. Your spirit spread throughout the lands. We assured ourselves that faith alone would be enough to bring you home. The passing days soon turned to weeks, smiles strained from weary cheeks. Our worst fears were left unspoken. Still without you, all our hearts were broken. Cues of your fate brought some relief, but our hope soon turned to grief. God in heaven heard our cries, and angels' tears filled somber skies. Out of anger and out of shame, we quickly sought to place the blame. It was as though secretly we shared the fear of a finger pointing in the mirror. But now a glance brings sweet refrain, because your spirit does still remain. Friendships formed, new dreams to share, will reach out in love and show we care. It's not the first time God above has sacrificed innocence to reveal love. For sweet Polly, when you died, your love by millions was multiplied. As we race into the darkness of the night, your face remains our guiding light. We will run the race and endure each mile, encouraged by your enchanting smile. End quote. Wow. Yeah, I will post that on our Instagram page too. It's when you really jump into this case, like I said before, the community was huge. Um, Monona Ryder, a celebrity came in. Every single inch of the community jumped in to help. There were, you know, searches with the police. There were private searches, promptu searches. Like everybody wanted to help. Even her classmates and younger kids were out there putting up posters and doing anything they could to bring her home. It it sucks that that had to happen to bring a community together. But I do, I always love seeing when a community comes together to fight for anything. And in this case, they were fighting to find Polly's body. But I think we also need to remember the officers that even when they did make a mistake, they immediately apologized and continued working so hard to find Polly. And when they did find her, I, I can't even imagine their own thoughts. I mean, uh, that poem you shared from that detective, man, who? What a look into what they feel as they, they go on. I don't know. Yes. I don't have the right words for it because words can't describe it. But Yeah. Well, so on the 2020 documentary about this case, a lot of the police and detectives were interviewed on that. And Pat Parks, the one who wrote the poem, he was interviewed on there too. And you can just see the emotion and how deeply this affected everyone, the community, yeah. the officers, the detectives, literally everyone involved. So it's it it's heartbreaking, but it's it's cool to see. I don't know if cool is the right word, but how this truly affects, like you were saying, it truly affects the police officers too. Yeah, it's good to see that the police officers are human. And I think that's forgotten a lot, but oh man yeah so there is now a memorial too that was started for poly class and it's grown into this huge thing people leave rocks with missing people's names on them and special dates 
and they leave teddy bears and notes and drawings, religious icons, literally all the things in this monument. And it's just kind of become, I mean, for Polly class, of course, but contributes to all these other missing children and kids that unfortunately had a similar fate. So I thought that was really cool, too. That That is way cool. It kind of brought attention as a whole to different cases as well. That's way cool. But yeah. Wow. That is all I have for you. (sighs) Well, thank you, Ash, for sharing that. Man, I always hate the kid cases. I know I said that before, but I always hate them. But you did a really good job at sharing it and focusing on Polly and the officers and everything. So thanks for sharing. Thank you. All right. Well, we will be back next week for a brand new episode. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, potatoes. Bye.